Uh, hello, folks. Good morning. How are y'all doing? We're having a good, good Sunday. Um, well, in 1947, some shepherds were out tending their sheep, and uh, one of them got bored, picked up some rocks, and started throwing them in the opening of some caves. And he heard a what sounded like glass breaking. Um, it was late in the day. He didn't have time to go investigate what that sound was. So the next day, he climbed up the cliffs and, and went down in the cave and found some uh, pottery there, and which eventually became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so uh, this was unexpected, uh, but um, it was very incredible discovery, obviously. It's one of the, what most scholars, what most archaeologists believe is the discovery of a lifetime. It's the most significant archaeological discovery ever. Um, and it happened in uh, Qumran, which is on the shores of the Dead Sea. Um, next to where they found th those scrolls, they've also discovered an Essene camp. And Essenes are, um, there's different sects in Judaism. There's the Pharisees and Sadducees we're probably most familiar with. There's the Zealots. And then there's the Essenes. And the Essenes were separatists. They are kind of like what we would consider like maybe monks in, in our time today. They would separate themselves out and just kind of do their own thing. And there's a lot of stuff that they would do um, throughout the time. Some of them were scribes and they would just copy scriptures. Um, and that's ended up being what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. They would put them in these uh, pots and everything. And in those pots um, is, is what the shepherd boy hit with the rock. Um, and it, it broke one of these pots. Um, and because of the arid climate and the dryness of the whole area, um, these scrolls from years and years before Christ were um, preserved. Sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. They, they had been preserved in this area. So the, uh, the Essenes, a lot of the different rituals and stuff they would go through, um, there's a, a ton of stuff to it. One story is they would, when they would sit around eating dinner, they wouldn't talk at all until, until they were done eating dinner. And then the head Essene leader, uh, once he was finished eating, he would break the silence first, and then they would all kind of talk and visit and stuff. Um, and then uh, anytime they would go out of the camp, they would go through a baptismal, and there's some pictures of that here. They would go through a baptismal, and anytime they re-entered the camp, they would go back through the baptismal. And this wasn't just like a they stayed there for months on end and happened to do this. This is like multiple times a day sometimes they're going through these baptismals and things. And so for a, a normal Jew back in that day, they would maybe get baptized once in their lifetime. It was a self-baptism that they would do. Um, if somebody was converting to Judaism, they would have to do these different uh, rituals, different rites of passage, I guess, to be a Jew. Um, one of those being they would do this self-baptism and they would see, they would do it in front of two witnesses. So these two witnesses would have to do, the others are like um, circumcision. And then uh, I forget what the third kind of requirement was back in that time. But a um, big portion of their day was, you know, making these comment, these copies, these tedious copies of the scrolls um, that we've found. And so they found, uh, you know, large portions of most of the Old Testament. I say most, they found large portions of some of all of the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther. That's the only book they haven't found there. There's different theories or reasons why people think they, they never found a copy of Esther. 
there, um, but that's the only one they didn't have. Uh, the 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 book that they had the most copies of is Psalms, but the chapter they have the most of that chapter of is Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll look at that in a bit, but um, I want to pray, and then we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 this morning, um, so I'll pray, we'll get into the scripture, and then we'll kind of talk about it, so let's pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for things that confirm your word to us, even, you know, 2,000 years later, like the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, even recent discovery, discovery a couple years ago of even more scrolls and more things from that time period. And I thank you that um, in all of our learning and research and discovery, um, the things that happen only affirm your word even more. And I thank you that um, is a trustworthy uh, document and it's something that we can live and base our lives on. And so help us now to uh, dig into your word and see what it's saying and uh, adjust our lives accordingly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 3, uh, let's read it and then we'll talk about it. It says, uh, In those days John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. For he is, for he is the one about whom the prophet Isaiah had spoken, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing made from camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his diet of locusts, his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. Then people came from Jerusalem, as well as all Judea and all the region around the Jordan, were going out, uh, and all the region of the Jordan were going out to him, and he was baptizing them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you offspring of vipers, be warned you, you who warn you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore, produce fruit that proves your repentance, and don't think you can say to yourselves, "We have Abraham as our father." For I tell you that the God that God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one coming after me is more powerful than I am. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clean out his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the storehouse. But the chaff will burn up the, the chaff he will burn up with an inextinguishable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you have come to me. So Jesus replied to him, Let it happen now, for it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John yielded to him. After Jesus was baptized, just as he was coming up out of the water, the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my one dear Son, in him I take great delight. So... Um, Lots of stuff happening here in these verses. Uh, first of all, remember Matthew's writing to this Jewish audience. Um, and he's telling them, you know, John the Baptist is coming from the wilderness and he, in those days. And he, his message was, um, he was a typical Baptist. Remember, he's John the Baptist. And he had a typical three-part message. And it was alliterative, like most Baptist preachers, I guess. Um, and his message was, repent, repent, repent. That was, that was John the Baptist's whole message. He had a message of repentance. That was his sermon, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So he's writing to this Jewish audience, and they're, um, 
they're, they had this aversion to saying God's name, as, as we've discussed before, but they didn't want to say God's name, so instead of using the phrase that's common in the Old Testament, kingdom of God, John uses this kingdom, or sorry, Matthew uses kingdom of heaven um, thing here. And so God's, the kingdom of God in the Old Testament is more of a, instead of it being a, like a geographical kingdom, it's just refers to the reign of God, God's reign. So God's reign, his kingdom of God is near, is at hand, and it's it's coming. And so he's he's writing this to them, and they're they're understanding it. Now it goes on and quotes Isaiah here. He says, The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. So he's quoting Isaiah 40. Remember, I said the largest portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls that they've ha- found of one particular chapter is Isaiah 40. And so um, a lot of scholars believe John the Baptist was one of these Essenes. In fact, there's in um, uh, among the documents they found that wasn't a biblical text. It was just a recording of some, some of their goings-on, like their diary, basically. Somebody would record what happens. There's an instance where there was some guy named John that, that was there and he started speaking before dinner was over and he kind of made a made a scene, so to speak. Um, but he talked about, we need to go tell people about this one that's coming. And so it's very, I mean, you put two and two together, it's very easy to think John's sitting here reading this scroll of Isaiah 40 that we know they had. Um, and he's re- he gets to this verse in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries out in the wilderness, clear a way for the Lord. Build a level road through the rift valley of our God, for our God. It's very easy. He's reading that and thinking, I'm this guy. Let me go and do this. And so um, then it describes John further. He says, you know, he's wearing hair made from camel's clothes, a leather belt wrapped around his waist. His diet consists of locusts and honey. Um, these details here... Um, they're not just painting a picture that John lived a different life, but they're telling about who he was specifically. And Matthew's also relating him to other other prophets. He's making this correlation to um, Elijah. So Elijah is talked about um, as being a little different. I think uh, one text describes him as being real hairy and all this other stuff. And then literally, well, let me back up a little bit. Remember, there's been 400 years of silence from the end of the Old Testament till now. There's been no prophet in the land. And here we have this prophet. John the Baptist comes as this prophet. Everybody's looking forward to him. Even the Pharisees and Sadducees are hearing about him, and they're going out to investigate to see. We see that here in a little bit. Um, But everybody's very excited about this. Um, John the Baptist is here, and he's wearing the cheapest clothes he could find, which would have been camel hair. I know like we have maybe camel hair jackets now, and that's a little fancier for us, but in their day, a camel hair jacket would have been, or camel hair clothes would have been just the cheapest. He's he's not um, trying to, dressing to impress or anything else. He's just um, be, living a very humble life. Um, he's eating things that is approved under the Mosaic law. This locust and honey is approved part of the diet um, and it's very common in this area where they would have it would have been plentiful in this dry desert arid land but then so where the Old Testament ends I'm gonna read that in a second it's Malachi chapter 4 
where that ends until now, we have nothing. But look and see how Malachi chapter 4 ends. It says, this is Malachi 4, 4 through 6. It says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, to whom at Horeb I gave rules and regulations for all Israel to obey. Okay, Malachi, we'll remember Moses and his law. That's what he's saying there. And then verse 5, he says, Look, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. He will encourage fathers and their children to return to me, a message of repentance, so that I will not come and strike the earth with judgment. So this prophet, he's sending Elijah, he's sending John the Baptist, who they consider to be a modern-day Elijah, to come and preach this message of repentance for fathers and children to return to him. Um, so I will not come and strike the earth with judgment. And so literally since the Old Testament wraps, um, they've been waiting for John the Baptist to come. And he's here and he's given this message and he says he's baptizing them in the Jordan River. They're coming, they're confessing their sins and he's baptizing them. Now remember, most Jews, the ritual was for them to baptize themselves. But he's coming and it seems like there's some kind of a... Um, He's sort of investigating each person individually to see where are where where is their level of repentance if they're not right in heart, um, and he's sort of there's like these spiritual qualifications he's determining based on each person, and then he's baptizing them um, to make sure they have this personal repentance. And then verse seven, we have the Pharisees and Sadducees. They come to be, to his baptism, and he has words with them. <laughs> A pretty strong reaction here uh, that he has, uh, but I don't think it's unwarranted. It's more than just, you know, John's an Essene, and these are rival sects. You know, these are Pharisees and Sadducees, and maybe the Essenes don't play well with them. That's not what's going on here as much. They're all on the same team, and they play well together. Um, but John's not really into playing a lot of games. He doesn't care what sect you belong to. He cares what is the nature of your heart. Where is your heart in relation to who God is. And so he sees them, you know, there's, you know, lots of different reasons we could give for why he's so, he gives this strong reaction to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Lots of different reasons. I think the the one probably the most often as he sees through them coming out, um, he just sees, okay, they're coming out. Maybe they're going to want to get baptized uh, just to please the crowd here and maintain their leadership status that they have. And so, um, and he, then he uses this play on words here. Verse 9, he says, um, Don't think that you came, don't think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. So the word for children and the word for stones here in Aramaic are both very similar words. They sound the same. Stones is Ebnaya, and children is Benyaya. And so he's just using this play on words here like, God can raise up children from these stones. He can raise up the Benyaya from the Ebnaya. And I'm probably saying that wrong, but I'm trying to say it as similar as it looks like it's spelled here. Um, and so, uh, so he, and he, verse 10 is very key here too. He says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he talks about the nature of his baptism versus the baptism that Christ is going to give us. He says, I baptize with water for repentance. And that is John's baptism. He's a baptism of repentance. He says, but the one coming after me is more powerful than I am. He says, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. I'm not 
some versions say I'm not worried to loosen his sandals. I think it be, can, can be interpreted either way um, if your version reads differently than this. So basically, that's to say um, these different rabbis and people, their followers, their students, wouldn't ever loosen their sandals. They wouldn't ever carry their sandals because even though they were a submissive person to the rabbi, um, that was something that was reserved for slaves. That was like the lowest of the low. And this is significant when you think about just in a few chapters, Jesus is going to bat, or he's going to wash some disciples' feet. Feet? Feet? He's going to wash some disciples' feet. Um, but that's, he's saying, I'm not even worthy to, be, to do what a slave would normally do. The job reserved for the slave, the lowest of the low. And there's even like statuses to the slaves and stuff. So if you had a, more of a status as a slave, you wouldn't even be the one taking people's sandals off and washing their feet as they're coming into your house or whatever. Uh, so like the lowest of the low, he's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that for this man, Jesus, for this one that's coming. So I'm baptizing you with water for repentance. One coming after me is more powerful than me. I'm not even worthy to loosen his sandals. Um, but he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So lots of thoughts on what Holy Spirit and fire could be. Uh, one is like, obviously, Holy Spirit is um, comes in for cleansing. He's cleansing us of our sins. And then fire is those that don't accept Jesus, don't have faith in Jesus then they're obviously going to get baptized with some punishment, with a judgment. So it's a, it's a baptism, baptism of judgment. Um, now I think you can make an argument like fire is a cleansing thing as well. Like we burn fields sometimes so that the crops will grow better in those fields and things like that. But in this scenario here, he's, he's, he's making a reference to um, Gehenna, which is south of Jerusalem, there was a trash heap and they would burn their trash in this valley down there south of Jerusalem and it was just known like that's the trash heap that's where we that's the pit of refuse and everything and so um, pagans would even sacrifice children out there in this area of Gehenna where they would just constantly be burning this trash and so this constant trash that's always burning down there um, is became known as a, as a sign of judgment but also as a reference to hell so sometimes whenever Jesus talks about hell, he refers to it as Gehenna, or this area south of Jerusalem, down there. And so he's so it has this idea that fire equals judgment and equals hell. And so that's what's going on here with this. And then he says his winnowing fork is in his hand. This winnowing fork, um, again, he doesn't go into a lot of detail of like what's that meaning for us because that would have been a common thing in their culture for us. I don't know when the last time you went out with your winnowing fork to separate the chaff from the regular wheat, but that's what they do. They would have like a some place somewhere, and usually it was like a small round building where they could open a, a few doors, and they would thresh out the wheat on the floor of this building, and they would take the fork, they would open up the doors where the wind could blow through there, and they would take the fork and they would toss the wheat up in the air, and the good wheat would fall to the ground, and the chaff or the husks, the shells of that wheat would just be blown out the door. So, be, so he's separating out the wheat from the chaff. And that's a ongoing motif for God separating out those who are his children from those who are not his children. And that happens throughout a lot of scripture. And so Jesus is coming with this winnowing fork and he's separating out the wheat from the chaff. And um, 
says verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clean out his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the storehouses. But the chaff he will burn up with inextinguishable fire. Inextinguishable fire similar to that that they experience in Gehenna when they've seen that. And then uh, verses 13 through 17, Jesus gets baptized. So he comes from Galilee for John to baptize him. John tries to prevent him from baptizing him. And it doesn't say how many times John prevented him from baptizing him. We know from like stories of Peter, there's things that are often repeated in thirds. And for something to be considered sincere, John would have tried to deny him from him baptizing, not deny him as the Christ like Peter did. But he would try to say, no, I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. That would have probably gone on three times. They would have known that John is really sincere in this. But but Jesus he and he doesn't Matthew doesn't go into detail on this um, here. But he says I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. That's John's response. And then Jesus replied, "Let it happen now, for it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness." So um, there's always concern for why did Jesus have to be baptized, or why did maybe not he didn't have to be, but why was he baptized? Why did he go through this experience? And there's uh, a bunch of different theories. Um, and this may be like a choose-your-own-adventure because I'm not going to tell you the right answer. I think all you know all of these are very probable um, reasons. Um, but one, it could have been uh, you know I think this is this is what I always heard growing up. But it was an example for other believers, right? Jesus was baptized as an example even for us today. But he would have done this as an example for everyone else. Two, it's just his identification with the believer's need. Like believers needed to be baptized, and then Jesus was identifying with their need in that. Three, some people think it was his ordination or equipping for ministry. Like it's this outward sign that, yes, I'm going to go be baptized, and this is going to be a sign like I'm now beginning my ministry. Um, and then uh, four, it was a symbol of his redemptive task that... Um, He's going to redeem his people, just like baptism seems to be like a, a cleansing kind of a thing in their culture. It's this cleansing ritual. Um, so he's he's going to go and redeem his people. Um, five, it could have just been that he's going to go and do this as approval for John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist had this ministry that, that Jesus wanted to sort of give his stamp of approval on. Like, yeah, what he's doing here um, through this baptism of repentance and kind of checking people's hearts before he baptizes them, that's a good thing. I'm going to approve that. And then six, um, and this is also very um, appropriate too, as it shifts baptism and as the picture from what they have here to more of the picture of baptism that we have now. Um, and so it's a it's and that's to say that the sixth reason is is prophetic of his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, when we get baptized today, we're not getting we're not baptized like in the same baptism they were going to John the Baptist for. It wasn't a baptism of repentance for them. Um, for us, you know, the repentance and saving and all that happens at the moment of salvation for us. When we're saved, we experience repentance and have faith and trust and all these things. But then we show that we are saved as through our obedience and baptism. And so it, and it's a picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection we get baptized. Um, and so this picture of that um, for us when we get baptized now, that's the picture that we have. We're identifying with Jesus 
through his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, as you go under, you're dead, you're buried, and then you raise up. And I always liked it whenever I was a kid. Even when I was an adult, I still liked it, I'm not going to lie. But whenever the preacher would baptize somebody, um, and then uh, as the, the person was coming out, out of the water, he would say, you know, as he's baptized, he'd say, you're buried with Christ in his likeness, and you're raised to walk in newness of life. And then as they're walking out of the baptistry, the pastor would pat him on the back. Now walk in newness of life. I always thought that was really great. I don't know why. I just thought, thought I think that's great. So we, we, we were to then go and walk in newness of life. And so that's what's happening here. So Jesus gets baptized. And probably one of the most significant things that happens in, in all of Scripture happens right after he comes up out of the water. Um, and now I will say this. I do think Jesus was coming up out of the water. It says, uh, verse 16, after Jesus was baptized, just as he was coming up out of the water, um, that that phrase, that part of that sentence can be translated a few different ways. I think most people agree it's as this is written. He's coming up out of the water. Right as he's coming up out of the water, this scene happens that we're about to discuss. Some people can say, well, he's not just coming up out of the water. He's coming up from the, the riverside there. Um, and the Jordan River. He's coming up out of out of the river, up up the banks of the river. That's what he means. He's coming up out of the water, out of that area. So, um, this is not uh, this here to say he came up out of the water. In my opinion, is not a um, evidence for a immersion baptism. The word baptism itself is evidence for an immersion baptism because it means immersion. Um, but also, you're not going to go down and get into the river just for them to sprinkle water over your head either. And I'm not, like, that's not the point of the message this morning. I just wanted to kind of clear that up. Um, that's not the, I'm not getting in a big deep dive over um, types of baptism or whatever, but you're not going to go down into the river just for somebody to, just for John the Baptist to like ladle over some water over your head. Like, why you got to get your whole like lower body wet in this river just for that, you know? But he could have just taken the water out of the river and done it on the side of the river. But anyhow, so that's that. But then, as he's coming up out of the river, this is a big significant thing. It says the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So you have. This picture of this Trinity, the picture of the Trinity is here in this baptism scene. Um, Jesus, the Son of God, comes up out of the water. The heavens open. He sees a dove descending on him. The Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove. And then God's voice from heaven says, This is my dear Son. In Him I take great pleasure. In Him I take great delight. Um I never really thought about that until I was preparing for this sermon before, but I never thought about the fact that um, when Jesus hears God's voice here, obviously he's spending time with his Father, he's praying to God throughout his 33 years up to this point, but it's not, I don't think, it, it hasn't been since he came in the incarnation, you know, at Christmas that we just talked about, hasn't been since he came as a baby, since he left heaven and came to this earth. He has not heard his father's voice until now. And he finally hears his dad's voice. And it's like, it's got to be like an emotional thing for him. You know, like, oh man, it's been 
years since I've heard your voice. How great is it to hear your voice? You know, it's it had to have been like um, not just you know that he's talking, but then to hear his dad's voice say what he says. And he says, "This is my one dear son. In him I take great delight." And so God is approving of what Jesus has done here, and he gets to hear his dad's voice, and that had to be. That'd be great. We all like hearing our parents' voice. And if your parents have passed, how great would it be to hear their voice one more time? Um, it's just it's just great. Um, so, yeah. Anyway. Um, so Jesus, he, he baptized here. This picture of the Trinity that we have here. We have it again later, which we'll talk about when we get to, I think it's Matthew 17. Or in Jesus' transfiguration. Um, but here, this is one of the first pictures we have of the Trinity. And we don't have, um, you know, the word Trinity isn't in Scripture anywhere, but we have um, pieces of it. One is in Genesis 1, whenever it says they were talking, when they were going to create man, they're going to create man in our image. And then we have this here, too, where, um, and then Matthew 17, obviously. And there's a few other places where it gives this picture of, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And descends on him like a dove, because dove, dove represents peace. Um, and so uh, I think it's I think this is a significant thing here, not just with what's going on with John, but then Jesus is affirming of what John is doing here. And uh, he's he's baptizing him in this in this baptism of repentance. And um, that shouldn't be lost on us. I think a lot of times, um, you know, maybe we don't talk about repentance too much. Um, I think certainly, you know, as we continue reading through Scripture, John ends up not really having a beef with Jesus. He just kind of questions Jesus. Even like sends a messenger to Jesus at one point to say, "Hey, are you going to step up?" Because Jesus's message wasn't as Judgment oriented as maybe John would have liked because John was a pretty intense guy as we've seen uh, but um, just because Jesus talked about love a lot more doesn't mean that Jesus also doesn't require repentance of us and um, I heard somebody say one time that you know we should be less concerned with sinning less because I think that that tends to be our focus a lot as believers like Man, if I could just stop doing this sin, or if I could stop doing that sin, then um, you know that's our focus a lot of times. But we should be less concerned about sinning less and more concerned about repenting more. And that always stuck with me. I thought it was really good. We should we should definitely be more concerned with repenting more, um, because uh, that is that is what God wants from us. And so um, I didn't mean to discount repentance to say that Jesus. Jesus' baptism was different. Um, the baptism that we experience through believers in Christ is different from this baptism of John. Um, I think that our our baptism of repentance is a is is in our hearts um, as we come to Christ, as we come to Christ as believers. But the word repented uh, should not be in our vocabulary. Repented doesn't exist. Uh, repentance believes because we have to constantly be repenting. Um, so there's not like, oh yeah, I repented, now I'm saved, and everything is good. No, we, there's still things we need to repent of, repent from. Um, and that's the whole aspect of our sanctification, working out our own salvation. Yeah. 
growing and becoming made more like Christ each and every day. And a big part of that is focusing on the things that we need to repent from. So maybe there's something that um, you're struggling with, you need to repent from. Um, I would encourage you to do that. If uh, you need prayer about that or anyone to talk to, I would love to talk to you about that and uh, counsel you through that or pray for you, whatever it is. Um, But yeah, we're going to sing a song here to kind of reflect. And um, uh, if you need to come now and pray with me, I'll I'll be around. If not, then... uh, you can talk to me later. Talk to me afterwards if you'd like. Uh, however, whatever you're most comfortable with, it's fine. Um, but let's pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for this example that Jesus gave. I thank you for the humility of John the Baptist here, even though he had crowds coming to hear him and people, even Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to hear him. He still... Um, came in humility. He came, you know, not dressing to impress, just coming, um, you know, a very humble manner, and very humble means, and um, not worried about um, all of the, the physical things on this earth, uh, but worried about the heart, worried about the spiritual aspect of things. And I thank you that he he came and and um, even even his statement of not being able to. Uh, carry Jesus' sandals. Um, he's not even that worthy, Lord. And I pray that, that you will give us humble hearts in that same way. Help us to understand that we're we're really not even worthy to, to carry your sandals, yet you still allow us to come and worship before you. Um, and so I pray that, that you will um, give us that encouragement to, to worship you more, uh, both through singing, through our personal devotion times, through reading your word and prayer, but also through serving others. I thank you that you give us opportunity to to partner with you in ministry and uh, that you will use us as your hands and feet to reach others. I thank you so much for that. It's such a great honor. Um, and I pray that you will um, help us to remain humble. Even whatever status we might get in this world, Lord, I pray that you will help us to remain humble, help us to have a heart like John the Baptist where he... He couldn't believe that Christ was asking him to baptize him when John should have been baptized by Jesus. Um, You still chose to work it that way. And I thank you for that. So work on our hearts now, Lord. Help us to um, repent more and serve you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.